Well, good morning. We've got some interesting sound effects going on at the back there, haven't we? Uh, do your very best to ignore them. Uh, listen only to me. Okay, right, so uh, before I get stuck in, I've got two um, little notices. Um, sorry, I, I, I know I'm pretty boring um, about these things, uh, but uh, Doreen's sister, Edie, uh, asked me if I had any further Heavens Above books because she wanted to give them to her friends for Christmas. That's nice, isn't it? But I didn't. So I had another print run done, and to keep the uh, unit price for Edie down to a reasonable level, I had to order a larger number. Now, the effect, of course, is I'm left with uh, six books. Um, so uh, if people remember, we looked at Heavens Above about this time last year. If you want a copy of a book, recommended retail price, £10. But I'm not asking for £10. I'm not even asking for £5. They're yours for bargain basement price of four quid, Arsh. Just four. Just four quid. Yeah. And you can have two for eight if you want. So, um, please, uh, let me get rid of those, because they're doing no good sitting on my shelf at home. So if you want a copy of that, uh, please uh, have a word with me. Um, and then, uh, not next week, but the week after the 5th, uh, we're starting another session in the afternoons, a similar idea. Um, I'm doing like a series. It's going to be called Blessings Abound, um, and we're focusing on God's blessings to us. Uh, we're going to focus in on Numbers uh, 6, verses 24 to 27, the great blessing, uh, the priestly blessing. We're going to have a look at that together. We're going to do it um, on a number of Sunday afternoons. Um, and I'm going to do my very best, as technology allows, we're going to be here or some of us are going to be here, but I'm doing my very best to make it a very accessible Zoom call as well. So I recognise with cold, dark evenings, and there was a great success, I think, during the lockdown. The Zoom calls on a Sunday afternoon were great. I thought they were anyway. I think that 30, 40 people turned up on Zoom. Um, so we're going to have a hybrid meeting. I'm kind of envisaging 12 to 20 people here, and maybe another 10, 15 on Zoom is what I'm thinking. So please make a note of that. It's going to be 4.30 on the 5th, two weeks' time. And if you can't come here physically, please join by Zoom, and we'll do our very best to make sure it works and it's accessible uh, to you by Zoom. So there are my two notices. Uh, before we get stuck to the sermon, let's uh, pray together, shall we? Father, we thank you again for your great goodness to us. We simply ask this morning that you will speak. By your spirit, you will draw close to us and we will listen to you. And Father, I pray especially for anyone here or anyone joining us uh, via live stream who doesn't know yet the Lord Jesus Christ as their saviour, or they're not sure that today might be the day that they come to know him and accept him as their saviour. This we ask in his name. Amen. So we're here, we should be uh, um, <coughs> Christian Response to Poverty Part 2. Are we, are we there? Are the slides there? Ready to go? Very good. Responding to Poverty Part 2. People who were here last week, who was here last week? Good, so you all know where we're, we're going here then. Um, so let's start. He was described as a new kind of man, truly a son of enlightenment. He was fluent in five languages. He read two more. He wrote over 16,000 letters. That means letters as in a correspondence, not letters as in individual <laughs> marks. He wrote over 16,000 letters. And we know that because we've still got access to them. They're all, all stored. You can go and read them if you wanted to. 
Um, he was acquainted with almost every influential person in America and Europe. He was an author, a politician, a lawyer, an economist, a scientist, a very successful architect, a philosopher, an inventor, and probably one of the world's greatest statesmen. He became the third president of the USA, and his name was Thomas Jefferson. There he is. Good looker too, wasn't he? Thomas Jefferson. Of all his achievements, he is remembered mostly for a few words he drafted in June of 1776. It became enshrined in the Declaration of Independence, and these words, I guess, we've all heard before. It says this, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and by men he means mankind, it's how they used to speak in those days, all men and women are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Very famous words, I guess you've all heard them before, and uh, it's brilliant and undoubtedly true. Uh, we have these rights, life and liberty, that's what we should have. And uh, we should have the ability to pursue happiness, the pursuit of happiness. Now another man, probably around uh, 1776 years before, said something else about happiness. Jesus says, happy, or blessed, happy, are the poor. Shock! <gasps> pursuit of happiness. What does the pursuit of happiness look like to you? Does it look like this? Does that look like the pursuit of happiness to you? Or this? How about that, Osh? Yeah, open top, open road, empty mind. <laughs> the pursuit of happiness. Or this? There we go, a nice romantic meal out. Do they look like happiness? The consumeristic, materialistic society we live in perhaps say they are the things we should be pursuing. Do you think? What about this? Does this look like happiness? Or this? Or this? Jesus says, happy are the poor. It's almost an oxymoronic statement, isn't it? Happy are the poor. How can the poor be happy? Well, we started last week, didn't we, looking at the Christian response to poverty. And we said that the word poor, or poverty, appears in the Bible, can anyone remember how many times? 178 times. 178. 178 times the word poor is used in the Bible. And in virtually every occasion, it is to do with physical poverty. It is to, to do with material lack. Whether it's lack of clothing, lack of money, lack of food, lack of shelter. Virtually every occasion, it's to do with physical poverty. And last week, we looked at the Christian response to physical poverty. And hopefully, you remember that. But there are some exceptions and one of those exceptions is Matthew 5, 3, where Jesus says, happy are the poor in, happy are the poor in spirit. 
And I'm going to come back to that verse at the end. I'm not going to explain it now. Hopefully I'll leave you a little confused. How can the poor be happy? How can the poor in spirit be happy? We're going to come back and resolve that at the end of the sermon. For the moment, all I want to point out is that the Bible recognises physical po uh, poverty. Most of those 178 references are to do with physical poverty. But the Bible also recognises spiritual poverty. And for my purposes right now, I'm going to define uh, spiritual poverty as simply not knowing the Lord Jesus Christ as your saviour. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your saviour, you have a relationship with God above. A glorious relationship. And we are told we're co-heirs with Christ. We've been raised with him. Spiritually speaking, brothers and sisters in Christ, we are spiritual billionaires. Billionaires. And we're going to look at the Christian response to people who are in spiritual poverty. People who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as their saviour. Last week uh, we uh, looked at the, spirit, uh, the response to physical poverty and we had three headings. Remember those? Is it up there yet? No. Give, help and Give, help, and speak. Well done, thank you. Give, help, and speak. And we saw that uh, um, we should give to those people in need. Um, very often, the people that God puts in our way, we should, we should give as we have the opportunity should, to give. We should give generously. We should give secretly. We should give courageously. We should give to those people that God puts in our way, those physically poor people that we meet. We can help. But then our giving needs to morph into helping. We want to bring people out of poverty and into community. We want to make them self-reliant, the dignity of work. Remember, give a man a fish and you feed him for one meal. Give a man a fishing rod and he can feed himself and his family full stop. Do you remember that? And we had biblical uh, uh, references to support those ideas. And thirdly, we should speak. We should speak out for the oppressed. We looked at uh, William Wilberforce and, and slavery as a great historical example. We thought about the work of T Tear Fund in Tanzania, I think, uh, speaking out for the oppressed in Tanzania. And we saw a bit of that last night. In fact, we saw Give and Help and Speak last night, didn't we? Those of you who were here and watching the video. And uh, I hasten to add the, the team that won the quiz also saw that. Um, <clears throat> yes. Sorry, I shouldn't have said that, should I? Uh, yeah, so give, help, speak in response to the physical poor. And uh, I'm going to use that structure again because I think those three points are very helpful for us when we think about the Christian response to those people in spiritual need. We should give, we should help, we should speak. And uh, follow me as we work our way through that. Firstly, we should give. I've just said, spiritually speaking, we are billionaires. Spiritually speaking, co-heirs with Christ. We've been blessed with every great gift in the heavenly realms. You probably could all take me to Bible passages that prove that. Now, if you were a monetary millionaire or a monetary billionaire and someone you knew or loved was homeless, wouldn't you do everything in your power to get them to accept something from you? Wouldn't you? Really? Now, let's, let's go to the absolute, for me, the horrific idea that one of my children is homeless. They're destitute. And I've got money. I would do everything in my power to get to them and help them. Wouldn't you? Really? Friends, spiritually speaking, we're billionaires. 
we probably all got people we know and love. Shouldn't we want to give to them? Shouldn't we want to do everything we can to reach out to them? I know it's hard. It's really hard to share your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as someone who you think's being cynical about it. It's hard. But what I want to do just for a few moments is just show you why spiritual poverty is so much worse than physical poverty. And I'm not trying to in any way diminish the problem of physical poverty. It is huge. It's a shame on our nation that we've got so many homeless people. It is. I'm not trying to diminish this. I just want to show you the reality of that. If, spirit, if physical poverty is Ben Nevis, then spiritual poverty is Everest. And I want to show you why that's a problem. Firstly, physical poverty is relative. Unless you're the poorest person in this world, you're always going to find someone who is poorer than you. Or if you, unless you're the richest person in the world, you're only going to find someone that's richer than you. Uh, the poverty line in the UK, uh, I did some research for last week that I didn't share with you. Uh, guess how many people in the UK live below the poverty line? Percentage. Any takers? 5%. Good guess. Wrong. Any other guesses? 25%. Good guess. Wrong. But close. The answer is 22% according to the latest statistics. 22%, one in five of our population is living below the poverty line. And the problem is not majorly with older people. I have to say that. I found all this looking at statistics. The real problem is with young people, children and families living in poverty. That's where the big problem is in our society. 22% are below the poverty line. What's the question all you scientists want to ask? With that statement, what's the question you scientists want to ask? 22% below the poverty line. What do you want to ask? You want to ask, who draws the poverty line? Where is the poverty line drawn? And I'll tell you, the poverty line is drawn at 60% of the median income. Now, how many people understand that statement? Remember maths at school, three averages, mean, mode and median? We're into statistics. Line all the incomes up from the smallest to the largest. Go for the one in the middle, that's your median. Poverty line, 60% of the median. Now, if the whole thing moves that way, the poverty line's still at 60%. So Margaret Thatcher, when she famously said, the poor in 1979 uh, were poorer than the poor today. Or, no, she put it the other way around, didn't she? The poor today are richer than the people the poor were at the start of my reign, is what she said. It's relative reign. Well, that's kind of how... She didn't actually say that, but that's how she acted, wasn't it? Um, sorry, this... Delete that from live stream, please. <laughs> it's relative. That's what I'm trying to get to. Poverty is relative. Physical poverty is relative. And it's true, the poor today are richer than the poor yesterday. Can you all see that? But when it comes to spiritual poverty, there's nothing relative about it. It's absolute. It's binary. You either know the Lord Jesus Christ or you don't. It's as clear as that. Yes or no. No in between. No relativity about it. You can't almost know him. You either know him or you don't know him. Let me illustrate some more. The Titanic. Let's have a bit of a picture. There it is, Titanic, 1912. Edwardian height of engineering, the Titanic. And it was also a picture of British and American class at that time. All society was built around, really, money. And it was all relative. And uh, I think officially there were seven classes, but I'll just make it simple. There was three classes on the Titanic. There was the first class, top right, the state, the state room there. Let me just read a little bit about uh, 
uh, the first class cabins on the, the um, Titanic. <coughs> first class passengers enjoyed a number of amenities. This is 1912, by the way, um, including a gymnasium, a squash court, a swimming pool, electric and Turkish baths. I'm not quite sure what the difference between electric and Turkish baths is. A barber shop, kennels for first class dogs, elevators, and both an open and enclosed promenade. And if you wanted the most expensive ticket on the Titanic, it would cost you £870 for a stateroom. Today's money, about £87,000 for a four-day trip. This is 1912. Four-day trip across on the Titanic. That was the height. That was Lord Astor. That was the richest person on the boat. Now, if you were third class, you had steerage. You can see this is the third-class dining room. Um, it's pretty good, I'm told. The steerage passengers said you got a better class of rat on the uh, Titanic. And their ticket was £7, which is about uh, £700 in today's money. So I'm just trying to explain the relative nature of poverty or the relative nature of wealth. Then what happened to the Titanic? It hit an iceberg and it sank. And you know what? At the point of that ship going down, it didn't matter whether you were dripping in diamonds or you had holes in the sole of your shoes. All that mattered was an absolute yes or no. Were you in a lifeboat or weren't you? Do you see? Do you see the difference in the problem? Physical poverty is relative. Spiritual poverty, absolute. Can I ask each one of you right now, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your saviour? Are you in the lifeboat? Are you out of it? Absolute relative. And uh, another reason that the spiritual poverty is a worse problem than physical poverty is it is eternal. Another illustration, sorry, I've laboured that too long. Next slide, please. That's, um, you might recognise that, that's King Tutankhamun's treasures. Remember King Tut? He was buried with a load of wealth. Why was he buried with a load of wealth? Because he believed it was going to be necessary for him the other side. He believed somehow he could take his wealth into eternity with him. Well, King Tutankhamun, spiritually as well, dead and gone. He's no longer here. But his wealth is, you can go and see it in the Cairo Museum. You can't take physical wealth with you, friends. But you can take spiritual wealth. It's the only, well, one of the only things we take beyond the grave. Do we know the Lord Jesus Christ or don't we know the, new, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ? That's going to matter in eternity. So physical poverty is a huge problem. I'm not trying to diminish that in any shape or form, but physical poverty is so much greater. Let me just summarise that with two very simple slides. Physical poverty is relative and it's temporary. It's only true for part of someone's life or at worst, the whole of their life. Yet spiritual poverty is absolute and it's eternal. And friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, we can give. We can share our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ with those we know and love. And I know it's tough. It's tough for me. I'm no expert in this at all, trying to share your faith. You think there's a cynical world out there. They seem to have this view that we're irrelevant. But friends, we can give. We can even if it's just a simple invitation to our carol service. Remember, I thought Ray was really helpful. A very simple thing he said on the, the church weekend. 
you know, when you give an invitation to the church uh, carol service to your neighbour or to a member of your family who you've been trying to witness to, you know they'll probably say no. But if they do say no, believe their attitude is, well, thanks for inviting me anyway. If you take that attitude, you know, you're probably more, far more likely to hand that invitation out and say, please come, I'd love to share the Christmas hope with you. We should give friends, we're spiritual billionaires. It's not easy to go up to a homeless person and have a word with him and give him some money. It's not. You want to walk away from them, don't you, on the streets. And uh, our natural instinct in sharing it, we might get left at, we might uh, um, not be dealt with in the way that we think we should be dealt with. But friends, we should give courageously. We should give generously of the wealth that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us be giving people because spiritual poverty is a huge problem. Give. Secondly, we should help. You know, when someone's converted, it's not the end. It's just the beginning of their walk with Christ. And we should be helping one another as we grow in our Christian life and in our Christian way. Uh, let me illustrate again. <coughs> oh, sorry. Completely forgot about that. Sorry, there's my biblical references to why we should give. So... Uh, Two very famous verses, Mark 16, 15, and he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole of creation. That's what Jesus said to his disciples. So if you're looking for a, uh, a scriptural uh, mandate for giving, spiritually giving, there's one. Acts 1, 8 is another very famous verse. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. There's a, another command uh, from Jesus to his disciples to go. And there's plenty of various references, but I particularly like the Philemon one. Um, because this is just Paul writing, and it's just natural, isn't it? And I pray that the sharing of your faith. He's just praying for this person. I know you're sharing your faith, but I pray that uh, it may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. There's a biblical mandate. Well, there's many more, but there's three um, which I've plucked out um, to, to back up that we should give spiritually. And secondly, as I said, our spiritual life starts at conversion but we need to grow and we need to help each other grow give help click click there that you recognize those three you recognize those three there's isaac at the top our youngest uh, then there's matt and then there's lydia they were cute weren't they i, I loved i loved my children when they were, were little um, but i didn't want them to stay little i wanted them to grow and uh, I've uh, had this great pleasure just recently. We walked to the top of uh, the old man at Coniston, and uh, there I am with uh, my three adult children. And I'm very glad they grew. And I've got to say, I've loved every stage of being a father. I'll start, my eyes will start watering if I don't move on quickly here. But I've loved every stage of it, but it's far better now than it was. To have mature conversations with your children, to talk about things that matter, um, to laugh together, to make fun of one another. They help me as much as uh, I help them. You should see what they do to my computer when they come home. It's great to have mature children. And you know, God wants you to grow. We need to move from the milk to the meat, and we need to help one another. And uh, I've got... Um, you'll have to bear with me um, on this, but I've got an illustration of this. And it comes from... Have I told you? 
Have I told you that I went, went, uh, once went to Buckingham Palace for tea? Have I told you that? Yeah, no. Well, have I told you that I've recently had a book published? Click. Have I told you that? No, I might have mentioned it in passing. Um, and I thought to try and illustrate this helping one another, I thought I'd use uh, a bit of a chapter from uh, our golf round. So there's four others, likely characters, myself, Jason, uh, Brian and Phil, um, the Fellowship of the Four, and we try and help each other. When we're playing golf, we're not really in competition with each other. We're trying to help each other as we go along. We encourage one another. Um, you know, it was, uh, what was it the other day? Brian very unusually hit a, a really bad shot. It kind of went <coughs> and landed over there. And Jason said, that's not like you, Brian. And we all said, no, it's not like you, Brian. Then Jason stood up and hit an absolute cracking, was it a three iron? Five wood, absolute cracking shot. Beautiful. And I said, not like you, Jason. <laughs> anyway, let me read what it says in the book. Uh, we often try to help each other. There's point one of this illustration. We want, we're, we're in this round together. We want to help each other. We often try to help each other with our combined wisdom on the mechanics of the golf swing. I am not sure that our combined wisdom adds up to much, though. We share thoughts about the takeaway, uh, not from the Chinese the night before, it means that, pulling away, um, and the height and speed of the backswing, acceleration on the downswing, the angle of club head at impact, and the follow-through. And most important of all, the turn and finish. You know how it goes? A good golf turn, please. That's right, isn't it, Tony? Back back leg turns, the turn and finish, and you end up looking at the ball, you know. Uh, turn and finish. Uh, and it should be like a fine um, glass of wine, it's smooth but complex. We all have slightly different directions we want, uh, sorry, we all have slightly different interpretations of the turn and finish. I have taken to trying to point my left toe in the direction I want the ball to go. It's true, it's true. Uh, Phil leads hard over to the side he wants the ball to move to. Uh, Brian does a little jog on the spot, and uh, it says here, Jason tightens his butt cheeks. After years of serious study, I have concluded that all the toe-pointing, body-leaning, on-the-spot jogging, and buttock-clenching makes absolutely no difference to the outcome. <laughs> the ball goes where the ball goes. But we are trying to help each other on this round of golf. I have had a single golf lesson... I have looked at some videos on YouTube, but the truth of the matter is that I am not honestly too bothered about getting better. That is true. I love golf just as it is for me. It is serious enough for it to mean something, but not enough, not serious enough, for it to cross the line into importance. For four hours, tee to hole, it matters, and then after that, it does not. But the bigger problem, though, is I think I have the same attitude to my Christian life. I am probably far too casual about it. Sitting here writing this, I'm being challenged, and I'd like to challenge you. Are we serious about getting better and being better in the worship and service of our Lord? It is wonderfully true that Jesus loves and accepts us as we are, but God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8, that's true. However, Jesus loves us far too much to leave us as we are. There is a progression and a development in Christian living. We are to move from the milk to the meat, and we are to help one another in it. Jason often reminds us while doing his job as a pastor, which I hasten to add at he is better than he is at golf, that we have been saved. We are being saved, and we will be saved. 
God is working his purposes out in us. The process of sanctification is an ongoing work. We need to be willing golfers in his hands as he rebuilds our swing. Or as Ezekiel 36, 26 puts it, I will remove from you a heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. The objective daily is to be more like Jesus. Neither you nor I can do anything about the round of golf or the life we lived yesterday, but we can learn for the next one. So it is, so it is in the Christian living. Yesterday is gone, but tomorrow we can ask for his help and apply ourselves to being more Christ-like. St. Francis of Assisi's prayer is appropriate at this point. These three things, dear Lord, I pray, to see thee more clearly, follow thee more nearly, love thee more dearly, day by day. We are, as Christians, on the Christian pathway, walking with Jesus. Continuous improvement should be a way of life. We can, be, we can move from being those that need spiritual nourishment to those that provide it. Can you see there's a nice analogy to the physical poverty? Remember Paul's description of the thief who used to do bad things to get by? He's now become converted as a Christian and he's helping other Christians. He's giving, physically giving. Spiritually speaking, can you see that? Someone's converted, they're a babe in Christ, they know next to nothing about the Bible. They've got so much to learn about God and his glory, but they grow, they grow in the Christian life. And God uses them later in that Christian life to give and nourish other people. Can you see that? Giving morphs to helping. We give to help people and we help people along. We are together in this Christian walk and we should help one another. How do we respond to uh, spiritual poverty? We should give, we should share our faith and we should help one another. And finally, we should speak. Give, help, speak. Exactly the same logic. We should be advocates. We should be advocates for other people. Remember the hand, the, the week of prayer? Write on the hand the names of people you want to be saved. Who do we speak to? Who do we ask? God in heaven, of course. Jesus told us a parable. Hopefully it's there. Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them they should always pray and never give up. I mean, that's pretty clear, isn't it? I really do live that, love that bit in the gospel. I mean, how, how, how much clearer could it be? They should always pray and never give up. I don't see how you can interpret that any other way. Friends, we should always pray and never give up. Those people on your hand, I hope you've not given up praying for them. Keep on praying. Be persistent. We're the priest of all believers. We can boldly approach the throne of God in heaven. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. We should constantly be speaking to God and asking him. We should be pestering him. We should be giving him no peace about the people we know and love and we want to be saved. We should speak on their behalf. In exactly the same way as we should lobby governments on behalf of the physical poor, we can lobby our God in heaven for those people we want to be saved. So the Christian response to people in spiritual poverty, give, give generously, give courageously. Let's invite them to carol service at Christmas as a start. How about that? We should help when people are converted. They need to develop from the meat uh, from the milk to the meat, we can help one another as we're on this Christian road. And we should speak, constantly speak to God, praying for each other and for those people especially that we want to be saved. Can you see the parallel to physical poverty and spiritual poverty? Can you see that? Hopefully that's been clear and hopefully that's been helpful. But to close, I want to go back to where we started, where Jesus said, 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Like all the Bible, if you just pluck it out, Jesus said blessed or blessed or happy. Happy is probably the right word. The Greek word was makarios. It means happy. It means a contentment. It means a contentment irrespective of circumstances. If you just pluck out happy are the poor, then you can be so misleading, can't it? These people are not happy because they're poor. Why are they happy? Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Can you see that? That's why they're happy, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, we've got to recognise that uh, Jesus spoke these words during the Sermon on the Mount. This was right at the start of his ministry. This was the king coming to his people. Jesus was laying out the policies and the principles and the priorities of the kingdom. It's the king's speech. But we've also got to recognise when he spoke, when he preached that Sermon on the Mount, he did not, or people did not know, and he, he had not revealed yet the way of the cross. His, his mission, the cross, was revealed very carefully and very gently over the next three years. And when we read the Sermon on the Mount, we've got to read it in the light of the cross. Remember, as Jesus came, people thought he was a Messiah. And they thought he was a Messiah who was going to release them from, poverty, uh, release them from bondage under the Roman yoke. They were looking for an earthly Messiah, a temporary Messiah, a Messiah for that age. But we know, and Jesus knew, that his mission was far bigger than that. If you've seen The Chosen, it comes out beautifully in that, uh, those few, uh, few programmes. His mission was far bigger than that. His mission was not to release people from slavery under the Roman yoke. It wasn't for one people, one set of people at one time, but his mission was for all people, for all times, and he was going to release us from the yoke of the devil and the yoke of sin and its consequences. That's why Jesus came. And what was the mechanism of his salvation? It was the cross where he gave himself for us. And when we go back and read the Sermon on the Mount in the light of the cross, it begins to make sense. I, can't, I haven't got time to uh, uh, preach through the Beatitudes, but the Beatitudes are the foundations and the features of Christian living. And if you put them back to the cross and what we know, it all makes sense. Happy are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here in this one statement is the beginning and the end of someone's conversion journey. What's one of the first steps, almost the first step of coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ as your saviour? It's a recognition, God's grace is, is active here, but it's a recognition that there's nothing in me. I am poor in spirit, nothing in my hand I bring. I have nothing, Lord. I recognise all this consumeristic, materialistic chasing of the world, this pursuit of happiness, will not yield me deep down contentment. Only a knowledge of a relationship with God can do that. It's true, isn't it? Are you all still with me? And if you're at that point, if you're at that point of recognising your spiritual poverty, God can work. God will work in your life. And he will bring you through, by his grace, through the work of our Lord on the cross. And we are told that we are co-heirs with Christ. Ours is the kingdom of heaven. And that's why we're happy. Because we're brought through to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ as our saviour. Our eternity is secure. We're going to heaven. We know God as our heavenly father. Happy. There's a reason to be happy, isn't there? And don't we want that for all the people around us? Those people we know and love. 
We should give, we should help, we should speak. But I want to close by saying we've been talking about the Christian response to poverty. What was Christ's response to poverty? Well, one, he gives. He gave himself fully on the cross. Philippians 2, he came down from heaven, he made himself man, the incarnate God, and he submitted himself to death, even death on the cross. He gave, he gave himself fully, and he goes on giving. And our Lord helps, doesn't he? We're told time and time again, he helps that verse we looked at earlier, the Great Commission. He closes by saying, and I will be with you to the end of the age. He gives Hebrews 13, um, it, we're told that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Sorry, he helps, Hebrews 13. He told us he will never leave us nor forsake us. Jesus Christ the same yesterday and forever. Hebrews 13, 8. It's on the notice board in the back. And we're told in Hebrews 4 and Hebrews 2 that he's our great high priest in heaven and he will help us in our time of need. Jesus gives, Jesus helps, and, praise God, Jesus speaks. He is our advocate in heaven. Before the throne of God above, we have a strong, a perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads, whoever lives and speaks. Who for? For you and for me. Jesus helps. Sorry, Jesus gives. Jesus helps. Jesus speaks.